Somebody's awake. Hey, be um, before we get started, I did just want to add my thanks to uh, what Mike said about the parking lot. So it's because you guys are so generous and you're so faithful in your giving that we were able to get that done. So it's going to be really nice when it snows uh, this winter or the next time it rains and you don't have to walk through a quagmire to get to the building. So it was fun to watch them. It was a little distracting because I kept running back and forth as they were doing it. I'm like, I gotta work, I gotta work, I gotta work. And then I'd run back out there. And so it was pretty quick. I was surprised that uh, I know what my next career after this is, though. I want to be the guy that stripes the parking lot. Because <laughs> that was just fun. The guy had like a little motorcycle and he just zipped up and down. It's like, I could do that. Maybe not. So, hey, this is the uh, fourth and final message in the Postcards from Babylon series. And uh, so I'm not going to lie. I will be happy to relinquish the pulpit and have Kent and Mike back. Uh, but it's been good. So what I've been trying to do in this series is trying to examine the idea of what it is, what it means for the church to be in exile. And I've said before, my thesis is that uh, the culture tolerated us before. Uh, at one point, the culture was favorable to us, and now that's not the case. And now the culture is openly hostile to Christianity. So we're no longer seen as part of the solution. We are the problem, or at least the conservative evangelical uh, version of Christianity that most of us practice. So week one, we looked at what does it mean that the church is in exile? Is that even a good metaphor for the church? And talked about how you can get uh, your head wrapped around the idea of us being in exile. Uh, week two, we talked about political engagement. What are the limits of government action? How should we interact with politics as a church in exile? And then last week we looked at what does it mean to be a community uh, of exiles and how we can thrive. And I hope, I reiterated last week that I really do mean thrive. And so I said, I hope you have gotten that this is a message of hope and joy because I really do believe that. So one of the benefits for me in studying this has been that as I've looked at the, the Israelite exile and then as I've thought about what it means for the church to be in exile, in our context, is that it has really, I've gained a heightened awareness and anticipation for Christ's return, for his second coming. So I lead a very good life by any measure you want to measure it by, okay? My knees hurt a little bit, but by, by any other measure, I have a fantastic life. And yet, in the midst of that fantastic life, there are days where I look at the dysfunction, and I look at the dishonesty, I look at the suffering, and I long, I long, I ache for Christ to come back. Because when he does, he's going to make everything right. And not only is he going to make things right with the culture, he's going to make things right with me. Guys, there's, there's days where I blow it, and I'm like, really, again, we're back in the same spot? And so I, I long for Christ to return, as good as my life is. So this is, I said, this is our last message. I've titled it The End of Exile. Uh, because our exile is going to end, ultimately, 
with Christ's return. So either we're going to die and we're going to be in his presence or he's going to come back. And that's when our exile is going to end. It's not going to be in cultural renewal. If that happens, that would be a good thing. But that's not when our exile is going to end. It's not going to be in the election of a favorable, more favorable government. That also would be a good thing. And I hope and pray for that. But that's not the end of our exile. So ultimately, it's going to end when Christ returns. And so, but until then, we live with this tension, right? We live with the tension that, that I'm experiencing is we live in this world, but we're longing for the next one. We're longing for, for things to be made right. And so the book of 1 Thessalonians, actually the fifth chapter, deals with that tension. How do we live in that anticipation? So I thought to close out the series, we would study that um, today. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Uh, we're going to be in that chapter mostly today. Um, if you're Using one of the Pew Bibles, it's on page 987. So backing up just a little bit in uh, chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, Paul gave them specifics about Christ's return. He said, this is what it's going to look like when Jesus comes back. And apparently there was a misunderstanding about people who had died prior to Christ's return. And so that's, that's the impetus for him giving these instructions. And I've quoted it every week. We're going to end with that again this week because he says encourage each other with these words and they're very encouraging words. But so he says, don't worry about what happened to people who have died in Christ that they're going to precede us when Christ returns and then we're going to go join them. That's my paraphrase. And then in verse five, he turns to this in light of that, in light of Christ's return, this is how you should live. This is how you should live in anticipation and readiness for his return. So he starts by telling them, now brothers and sisters, about times and dates we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly, as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Paul says there's no reason to write about times and dates. And he says that for a couple reasons. The first most obvious one is that he doesn't know. Nobody does. God alone knows the date and time of Christ's return. And so any attempt to pinpoint that date is going to be mere speculation. Although people have tried uh, throughout history. There was one guy, I can't remember his name, um, but anyway, he, he kept moving the date. You remember his name? It was an old, anyway. So this date wouldn't work and he'd move it. And this date wouldn't work and he moved it. And this date wouldn't work and he'd move it again. And finally this guy died. And so he couldn't move the date anymore. I, I wish I could remember his name. I should have looked it up. Anyway, in, so in Matthew 24, Jesus is asked a question by his disciples. And, he, and it's a question about the end. When will these things happen? And so he teaches them some signs that are going to point to his return being close. And then in verse 36, he says this. He says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. So nobody knows. Jesus says he doesn't even know. And the other reason that Paul didn't see a need to talk to them about times and dates was that 
the, excuse me, I knew I was going to trip over there, their name. The Thessalonians, the church in uh, Thessalonica, understood that they were living in the last days. They were living in the last days, and so Christ's return could come at any time. And not only were they living in the last days, but so are we. We're living in the last days. Now, usually when we say last days, we mean like the week prior to Christ's return, right? So we want to look at these events, and we want to say, oh, is that it? Have we crossed over into the last days? Uh, Is this the trigger that is going to lead to the events of Christ's return? They understood that since Christ's first coming, every generation of Christians has been living in the last days. This is what the book of Hebrews says. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. And when at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit descended on the apostles, enabling them to speak in different languages, Peter quoted the prophet Joel to explain what was happening. It says, Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall see shall dream dreams. So they understood, we're living in the last times. Christ's return could happen at any time. And for us, we should cultivate that same, that same awareness that we're living in the last days and that at any point, the events leading to Christ's return could happen. The reason we should is that it gives us a sense of focus. It gives us a sense of urgency Right? We're going to talk about the day of the Lord here in a minute. But if we understand that we're in the last days, we can be focused about what we're doing. We can be living in ways that are beneficial for the kingdom, which is what we all want. Right. So because they understood that, they understood they were living in the last days. In verses 2 and 3, Paul could say that they were fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. So the world's going to be caught by surprise uh, when this event happens, but not the church, or at least the church shouldn't be caught by surprise. Now, I'm not going to spend time actually talking about the day of the Lord. I think Mike has uh, taught about that, and I know Bill for sure has taught about the day of the Lord when he did his Sunday school class on the end times. So those are available on the website. If you want a more detailed treatment, you can go out to the website and look those up. But this is what I will say about the day of the Lord. It is is almost always, maybe always, uh, depicted in Scripture as a time of wrath and judgment. And so for Christians, it's not something to worry about because we're not subject to wrath and judgment. Paul's going to say that later on. 
this is what the book of Malachi says about the day of the Lord. For, and for behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. So it's going to be, can you imagine this day? It's a surprise. You're not expecting it. And then it's a day of wrath and judgment. People who are without the protection of Jesus Christ and his righteousness are going to experience the full force and fury of God's righteous wrath without an opportunity to appeal and without any relief. It's going to be a it's going to be a horrible day for those who, who die without Christ. For those of us who belong to Christ, it's a day of salvation and joy. Uh, Malachi 4, which is I just read, goes on. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. The, the, the contrast could not be more stark between the fate of the wicked and the fate of the righteous. And what Paul is saying is, you, you Thessalonians, you understand you're living in the last days, so you're not going to be surprised by the day of the Lord. Okay, And we should cultivate that same understanding because the time is short. And so evangelism takes on an added... When you, when you read these passages and you see the fate of the wicked, evangelism takes on a, an added urgency. Right? The, the, the clock is ticking, and so we need to be, we need to be telling people uh, the good news of the gospel. So Paul's commended them for their attitude, understanding of the times. Um, and then he says... Because you know this, because you know you're in the last days, because the day of the Lord is not going to keep you, surprise you, stay awake and be sober. So in verse 6, Paul says, so then, because the previous, what he just said, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So this is a, a call not only to perseverance, but also to watchfulness. Perseverance and watchfulness. Uh, we live in a world that applies lots of pressure on believers to evolve, say air quotes, evolve in their beliefs, right? Uh, Evolve. We see it with the attempts to harmonize creation account with evolution. And so what that results in is you get prominent evangelicals. I'm not going to name names, but people you would know. Uh, maybe you have their books in your library. Uh, asking the question, was Adam specially created uh, or was he a hominid uh, that is the result of millions of years of evolution? All right questioning whether the first 11 chapters of Genesis should be regarded as myth or whether it's actual, an actual historical account. 
the big pressure now on believers is to evolve in our beliefs on sexuality. What does it mean to be made in the image of God, male and female? Right? There's something intrinsic about that being created male and female is the way we image God. Uh, there's less pressure now, it's pr- pretty much been accepted, to accept alternate forms of marriage. Right? So there's all this pressure to evolve in our beliefs. Even if there's not pressure to evolve in beliefs, guys, we are awash in information. And, and most of it is useless information. Most of it is not, uh, has no eternal value, has no uh, redeeming qualities. That may seem pretty pessimistic. Uh, mainly talking about social media. You know, technology, I'm, I'm a technology person. I like technology, right? I have a, I have a phone, I use it. And, uh, so I'm not against technology because it has done a lot. It's increased the standard of living. It's made things possible that we couldn't even dream of. But it's also given us things like social media, right? Which is, apologize for anybody who's addicted to social media, which is pretty much a cesspool, right? I can't think of too many redeeming qualities for it. Um, you know, we have a situation where, where Christians who are not firmly grounded in the scripture, you can, you can go on YouTube or Vimeo and you can listen to any kind of teacher. And because they're not grounded in the scripture, scripture think, oh, that sounds good. That's a shiny object. I'll go chase that. And, and people are easily led astray. You know, Paul says, let us be sober. Let us stay awake and let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. You know, the breastplate, breastplate, excuse me, breastplate and the helmet, they represent protection. Breastplate protects our heart so we don't chase after lesser loves and abandon Christ. And the helmet protects our head so that we don't forget what is true. In Romans 12, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Right? So we don't give our mind over to things that are worthless and abandon truth. So Paul's going to expand on verse 8 in verses 9 through 11. So since we belong to the day, we should stay sober, protecting our heart with faith and love and our mind with the hope of salvation because... He says, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, this is a beautiful, beautiful statement of the assurance of believers, right? We believe once saved, always saved, eternal security, however you want to frame it, uh, that if God has set his love on you, it cannot be undone. Ephesians 1.5 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So think about this for a second. Before... Before God created anything, before he spoke anything into being, God determined that those who he was going to save would be saved. So that's you. 
if you belong to Christ. That's me. Before God did anything else, he, he determined and destined people to be saved. So if that's not encouraging, then I quit. And I don't know what will be encouraging. So those are beautiful verses. They, they should encourage us. And they should give us the motivation to stay awake and be sober. To watch out. All right, moving down to verse 14. Uh, Paul's going to give a series of short commands. It's almost like a staccato uh, bang, bang, bang commands. Uh, he begins by saying, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, and help the weak. Now, the Greek word translated idle there, it can mean disorderly or out of ranks or insubordinate when it's used in a military context. It can also just mean lazy. Um, so Paul could be talking about people who are uh, church members who are disruptive or contentious. They cause division in the body. Maybe they distract the body from what they're doing. Uh, they could be grumbling, complaining, people that are just never happy. He could also be talking about people who are just lazy, people who are either physically lazy or people who are lazy in their responsibilities to the church family. So they don't serve, they don't contribute, they don't give, they don't um, and otherwise provide for the body. So they're consumers, not producers. And Paul says admonish these people. And so admonishment may seem like a harsh thing. It may seem, uh, to our sensitive ears, it may seem, wow, that's, that's not what we want to do. But the goal of admonishment is it's to correct behavior so that the church is protected. And then also so that the person is protected, so that their, their salvation, that they can continue on the same path. So it's not necessarily punitive, but it's for the good of the church and it's for the good of the person, right? And sometimes that requires a trip to the woodshed, so to speak. So it's not fun, but it's something that's necessary. Uh, another quick note on this is that these verses were not written to elders per se, right? So it's not church leadership that should be admonishing. It's all of us should be admonishing each other. So we should be involved enough in each other's lives where we see each other stepping out of bounds or something. And in those cases where you see somebody straying, you need to admonish them, bring them back. There's another group of church people, the faint-hearted, and Paul says to encourage them. So these are people whose their faith is either faltering, maybe because of persecution, maybe just because of the, the daily grind of life, right? It just gets hard sometimes, and, and you get tired. And so your faith starts to falter. We probably all have been in this group at one time or another. Uh, this group could also be Christians who are not very mature in their faith or who are younger in the faith, right? And so they have a, they have a setback. Something doesn't go the way they want. Or maybe they're a college student and their faith gets challenged by a professor for the first time and they don't know what to do. So the answer is the same thing. Encourage. Uh, 
encourage those people, right? There's, we've talked before, there's 59 one another passages in the Bible. Almost all of those one another passages have to deal with encouragement. Bear one another's burdens. Pray for one another, right? Encouragement is, a, is an, it's not a gift, it's not a fruit of the Spirit, uh, but it's an often overlooked thing, right? My wife is a great encourager. I aspire uh, to be encouraging, but don't often do it. But we should be encouraging. And then the final group is the weak, and Paul says they're to be helped. So these are the type of people that uh, Jesus talks about in Matthew 25 in the parable of the sheep and the goats. You're probably familiar with it. So at the white throne judgment, Jesus separates believers. Uh, the believers are represented by the sheep, and he puts them on his right. And unbelievers are represented by the goats, and he put those, puts those on his left. And he says to the people on his right, so then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And the sheep naturally asked, well, when did I, I think if I had done this to Jesus, I would remember, right? If I clothed Jesus, I would have remembered. Uh, when did we do this? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Now, these verses are sometimes misinterpreted to mean that we should do good to all people. And... We should do good to all people. There's lots of verses that say that, but not these verses, okay? So these verses are talking about the good you do to other believers because Jesus said, my brothers and sisters. And the only people that are his brothers and sisters are, are Christians, they're believers. And so, since Christians are part of the body of Christ, what we do for other Christians, we do for Christ. So Paul says, for all three of these groups, we should be patient with them all. And, and that can be a difficult thing to do, right? So when you're, when you're dealing with somebody who's idle, you're, you're admonishing someone or somebody who is, needs help or somebody who's faint-hearted, it can be hard sometimes to be compassionate and to be patient. And I, I know I have talked to people at some points, uh, counseling, and just said, you know, I can't, I, I want to will this for you, but I can't. I want you to get this, but I can't. I want your, why can't you, why can't you get this? Why can't we move beyond whatever this thing is? So it can be difficult to be patient, but Paul says, be patient with these people. And if you remember, these are God's kids that you're interacting with. So even somebody you're admonishing, they're a believer, that's God's, that's God's child. And God cares very much how his kids get treated. So we should make attempts to be, to be uh, patient. All right, in verses 16 through 18, Paul says to be joyful always. Pray without ceasing and to give thanks in all circumstances. And this is a recurring theme for Paul. He says it in 2 Corinthians, Ephesians, and Philippians. So he's saying as you're, as you're going about life, with the, with the knowledge that you're living in the last days, uh, 
Christ's return could come at any moment. As you're just going about your daily life, doing things that you do, be joyful always. And is it difficult to be joyful always in the world that we live in? Is it difficult? Right? It, it can be. It can be. It takes practice. Um, one of the things I would commend to you is, as helpful for me, is remembering God's promises in situations where being joyful is not my first response. So we got a bad economic report this week. Food prices are 9.1% higher than they were a year ago. Right? So you go to the grocery store, you look at your bill, and you're like, what? Um, it, it can be difficult to be joyful in that circumstance. You're worried about inflation, right? But you can remember Matthew 6. Jesus says, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So this is not a gimmick. It's not a, it's not a magic talisman. But what it is is you're applying scripture to situations you're in where maybe you don't feel like you want to be joyful. You're remembering God's promises. And because you remember that God is faithful, his steadfast love never ends, it, it gives you the ability to be joyful in circumstances where you, that might not be intuitive. So it helps, this is the part of the uh, teaching where I'm going to say read your Bibles, right? Because it helps if you know a breadth of Scripture. It helps if you can remember the promises that you've read. But listen, guys, if, if all you can remember is that you were saved by grace through faith and this not of yourselves, if that's all you remember, that alone is enough should be enough to enable you to be joyful in every circumstance. Right? Because that alone, we've been saved, nothing else matters. I belong to Christ, nothing else matters. All right, and Paul's going to exhort the church to pray without ceasing. Uh, sometimes this, we hear this, Paul said this before in some of his other letters, and you think, well, how can I pray without ceasing? Would I, I go into a room and all I do is pray? I come out to eat every once in a while, or I go to the bathroom. And that's not what Paul means. What he's really talking about is an attitude of prayer. Right? That prayer should be an integral and regular part of the day. It should be uh, to the point where it's natural, where it's like breathing. You don't think about it, you just do it. So as situations or people come to mind, your first thought is to pray. You're in a situation where you don't know what to do. Your first thought is to pray. It should, be a, it should be a pattern. And this takes practice too. Just like remembering God's promises, praying consistently takes, takes effort. It takes practice to do. And finally, Paul says to give thanks in all circumstances. And this is just an acknowledgement of God's sovereignty. Right? If, I, if I believe that God is sovereignly directing everything in my life, no matter what it is, if I believe that God is working to my good, if I believe that God loves me, 
then it doesn't matter what the circumstance is. Whether it's good or bad, I can give thanks in it. Uh, this takes on added significance because what does Paul say? He says, this is God's will for you. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So we often want to ask, well, what's God's will for me? Right here, to, to give thanks in every circumstance is God's will. So he's going to conclude this section by saying, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. The word quench in this verse means to pour water. So if you imagine you're putting out a campfire, you pour water on it, you douse the flames so you don't want any embers. And so you might ask, well, how, did, how does that work? How do I quench the Holy Spirit? Because he's the third person of the Trinity. And it doesn't mean you put him out. It means you impede his work in your life. And it turns out that that's a pretty easy thing to do for a lot of us, Right? So you can fail to read your Bible and you can rob yourself of the primary means that the Spirit uses to speak to you. You can allow worry or anxiety or anything else to cloud your emotions and your thoughts and you'll drown out his voice. We can fill our lives with busyness so that we never even get to the starting point of sitting down and being quiet and listening. And that busyness can be good things. Doesn't, doesn't mean you're out doing something crazy. It means just the busyness of life. Your calendar is completely full. There's no margin in it. There's no room to sit quietly with your Bibles and listen to what the Spirit is telling you. And so, you know, we can, we can gauge ourselves against Scripture. So Galatians 5.22 should come immediately to mind. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I almost did the song from Doxazo. If you were here, you know that. Because we did it over and over. You know, are, are those qualities present in our life? Are, are, they, are we growing in those things? Guys, not perfectly, but can you see some fruit in your life. Ask somebody as close to you, do you see fruit? Am I, I'm not the person I want to be, I get that, but I'm not the person I was, is kind of the idea. If you find you have a problem, uh, the solution is at hand. Repent, confess your sin in that area, and then ask, ask God, ask the Spirit for a renewed sense of his presence. All right, verse 21, 20 and 21 go in tandem. So in verse 20, he says, do not despise prophecies. And in verse 21, he says, test everything, hold fast to the good. The Greek word translated despise, it means to treat contemptibly, to reject out of hand. Something that's not worth your time. It's not worth thinking about. It's beneath you, okay? Um, I think it's funny that Paul was probably recalling his his time in Thessalonica from Acts 17. So if you read that, Paul was preaching and some people believed, but the Jews got angry. And so they attacked the house that he was staying at and they hauled Stephen in front of the authorities. And it said, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar 
saying that there is another king, Jesus. So Paul had spoken the truth. He'd given them a prophetic word, and they had rejected it. They didn't want it. They didn't want anything to do with it. Luke is going to contrast the Berean and Thessalonian Jews later on in chapter 17 of Acts. He says, The Bereans were more noble because they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Now, we don't have, we don't have prophecy in the same way that they did. right? So we don't have apostolic prophetic utterances. But you all have Bibles. And so you can look in your Bibles and see whether what I am telling you, what Kent is telling you, what Mike is telling you, what the dude you're listening to on YouTube is telling you. You can check that against the Scriptures. And you should be checking that against the Scriptures. You should be like the Bereans. And if it doesn't line up, you should reject. If it does line up, you shouldn't despise those prophecies. Okay, Not because I said them or because Mike said them, but because they line up with what God said. And the whole point of that, Paul says, is so that you can hold fast to what is good and you can avoid every kind of evil, which is what we should all want to be doing uh, as we're awake and sober. So Paul's going to conclude the chapter. He's going to conclude with with an encouraging benediction. He says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. You know, last week I talked about Jeremiah's words to the exiles and how encouraging they were. And these are Paul's encouraging words to the Thessalonians, right? They needed encouragement, the Israelites needed encouragement, and we needed encouragement. So that God himself will completely sanctify them and keep them blameless until the coming of the Lord. That promise applies to us as well. If you're, if you're tired from life, if you're tired from the struggle against sin, if you're tired from the nonsense in the culture, you have the promise that God is going to complete the work that he started in you. There's, there's hope. Our sanctification is assured. So, um, I'm going to ask the band to come up. And I'm going to ask you to stand with me. And for the last time, we're going to, we're going to read, we're going to encourage each other with these words. So read with me, please. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God.